0: Hello, this is Kurt Frankum, and many of you know me as the host of the Leading Saints podcast. But Leading Saints isn't just a podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we strive to create quality leadership content for Latter-day Saints in order to help them be better prepared to lead. With this mission comes a lot of expense, and we need additional help to continue our efforts in the coming year. In order to exchange value for value, we have created the Core Leader Community. To become a core leader, all you have to do is become a subscribing donor, which might be a monthly recurring donation or even a quarterly or yearly donation. For those who become a core leader through a subscription donation, you have access to our core leader library, which includes additional recorded interviews not available to the general audience, access to all virtual summits, discounts on products and conferences, and access to a private core cast feed where you will hear additional leadership thought and behind-the-scenes happenings. We are a community of leaders making this happen, and we need you a part of this mission. Text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to become a core leader today, or visit leadingsaints.org slash donate. Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. It's my voice again, because my voice belongs to Kurt Frankham. And that was probably the weirdest thing I've ever said. But I'm the host nonetheless, so we're going to roll with it. If you're new to Leading Saints, this is a podcast where we talk all things leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. Because our mission as a nonprofit organization is to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through various methods. And one of those methods is this podcast. So definitely subscribe, share it with others, and uh, jump back into our archive of 350-ish episodes, and uh, there's a lot there to learn. Now, in this episode, which we'll add to the list of that long list of episodes, we talk with uh, Brent Danes and Jason Coombs. Now, I've talked with Jason Coombs before during the Liberating Saints Virtual Summit, which you can see more information on by going to leadingsaints.org slash liberating, because Jason has a f- remarkable recovery story from uh, various addictions and uh, really just Went through a journey that is hard to imagine, but nonetheless is now using that history to uh, influence and impact so many lives through his uh, resource and through his company Brickhouse Recovery, which is up in the the Boise area. And uh, back when he was really struggling, his bishop and stake president was Brent Daines. I think it was actually just a bishop that time. If, <laughs> anyways, Brent Daines was his leader, his bishop for sure during this time. And I remember those times being a bishop where you're just trying so hard to help other people, especially those that are trapped in the, the jaws of addiction, and nothing seems to be working. And change just seems so slow, and it can be so discouraging. Well, uh, you know, Brent Danes was there a lot as the Bishop of of Jason. And nonetheless, they share their story that is so inspiring and enlightening about how, how Bishop Danes just slowly ministered along encouraged Jason each step of the way, whether he was in jail or homeless or whatever it was, always reached out to him, even in those times when he wasn't outside the ward, even those times when he lived outside the ward. So it's a fantastic story. It's such a pleasure to sit down with uh, Brent and Jason and get it recorded. And hopefully it will inspire leaders that are in the midst of a similar situation to, to keep going, keep praying because the Savior's got him, and the Savior will never stop reaching out to these individuals. So here is my interview with Brent Danes and Jason Coombs. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down with Brent Danes and Jason Coombs. How are you 2
1: I'm doing great. How are you? Good to be here. Yeah.
0: yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, Jason, we'll, we'll start with you, kind of putting you into context here. We, we've talked before. You were part of the Liberating Saints Virtual Summit, which gave a great Presentation that uh, I got a lot of positive feedback on that, uh, but maybe for those don't knowing that don't know you other than as a, a accomplished uh, best-selling author for, of Unhooked: How to Help an Addict Loved One Recover. Tell us about yourself. Put yourself into context.
1: Uh, thank you for the the kind words, and you know I am honored to be a part of Leading Saints because both of my brothers are in leadership positions, and at random times they've sent me a. Podcast said, "Have you heard this podcast before?" I'm like, "Yeah, I know, (laughs) Kurt. I was a part of it." And they're like, "You were (laughs) (laughs) not you." Yeah, that was that was a fun summit on Liberating Saints. But a little bit about me: I am a uh, Utah native, but uh, currently live up in the the Boise area, right outside of Boise, with my beautiful wife, Bryn, and we have three and a half year old twins, and they are a boy and a girl. They are just my world. We own two treatment programs called Brick House Recovery. One is in Boise, and one is in Idaho Falls. And so, I'm a entrepreneur as well as, uh, as you mentioned, a, an author. And I do a fair amount of professional speaking. And uh, I'm here as a result of the man sitting across the table from me, in in this interview, who's had a big impact on on my life. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah.
0: And we'll, we'll definitely get into that story. And uh, Brent, what about you? What, tell us about yourself, where you're from, uh, what brings you here? Born
2: and raised in Bountiful, a father of seven, served as Jason's bishop from 2006 to 2011, and just uh, developed a real strong relationship with
0: Jason. So right. Awesome. Yeah. And we connected just, I think, separately at first, but then you made the connection with each other. And, and then as I heard Jason's story and I heard about this bishop that was involved in your story, and, and so the leadership principles came to the surface for me, thinking, wow, there's a lot there that who we could really talk about, dissect, and, and see if we could apply elsewhere in other lives of leaders. And so that's what I hope to do is uh, hopefully facilitate the, the telling of this story, and you can both t- sort of tell both sides, and, and we'll see where it goes from there. But Jason, I, I imagine this starts with you, <laughs> Some one bad decision long, long ago, right? I don't know. I, I would, where, does this, where does your story start in, in your recovery?
1: Yeah, to set the table of uh, of this interview, and this I, I would in two thousand three I was living in Centerville, Utah, and this was the time that Bishop Danes was not my bishop at the time, but um, I was fully active in church and had a th- thriving career working at a local television station as a advertising salesperson and was uh, receiving good accolades there and was making a great. L- when I say great living for someone right out of college, it uh, it was wonderful. We didn't have any kids, and so we spent a lot of time traveling. and uh, one Sunday evening we were headed over to my parents who lived in Bountiful, and we it was a rainy night and it was warm as it was summertime. and the so the roads were really wet. And as we were getting off of the woods cross exit uh, over there by Lorena's Mexican restaurant, we were rear-ended at the stoplight by a 17-year-old kid because he slammed on his brakes and the, the road was so slippery. So my wife and I b- both received a little bit of an injury, nothing too crazy. We, we had whiplash. And a couple of days later, I went back to work, and one of my coworkers approached me and asked me if I was interested in going to lunch with him. So we went to lunch, and at, at this time in my life, I wasn't living super close to the spirit. I was more interested, when I say fully active in the church, let's just say I was going every Sunday. I had a Sunday school calling as a teacher, co-teacher with my my wife and but I had a little bit of a wild hair side of me and so at lunch my buddy and I were were, were having a beer. And at the time I knew it was wrong. I just didn't think it was that big of a deal. Same same with every once in a while I'd go skiing on Sundays or I would have a cup of cop- coffee in the morning at the office. Those kind of little decisions in the beginning that charted the course, which, which, if you know, at the time I effectively disinvited the spirit to be with me. I kind of said, hey, you hang here, I'm going to go on without you and when I need you I'll Call for yeah. you, type of a relationship. And
0: This was a pretty—I mean, you had a pretty traditional Latter-day Saint upbringing, went on a mission, that type of thing, right?
1: Yeah, in in fact, I I typically don't share this, but just it, in context of leadership, I President Faust is my grandfather, so oh, okay. was my mother's dad, and so I was raised going to barbecues with first presidency, and <laughs> w- yeah. was v- very exposed to leadership and and the the gospel and its principles and. I have such a wonderful family and we, uh, but I bring that up because this goes to show, you know, every family has their stuff. Yeah. And so at this point in time where my coworker was offering, well, I'll just share this part of the story, you know, as he was asking me about my pain management and who I was seeing and whatnot, I, I said, I wasn't seeing anyone from my pain management at that moment.
0: And he, was there pain there? I mean, was it something you were? You know, wrestling?
1: there was a there was a little bit of pain, but nothing. It's nothing you were worried about. Uh, nothing yeah. I was worried about. But yeah. but at that moment, he began to tell me about this doctor that he was seeing for his pain. Oh, okay. And you know, he he right flowered all, it up right? with right. He flowered it up with hey, they this doctor does some wonderful hydrotherapy and massage therapy, and he gives us he gives the good stuff. And at that moment, he pulled out this jumbo sized bottle of pills, and he showed me his name on the pills, and the label said oxycotton, uh-huh. and there were 80 milligram pills. Yeah.
0: And this still felt like a very normal conversation, just two friends at lunch. I mean, it wasn't like, okay, is this, this guy a dealer or something? I mean, it never got, no, it didn't feel like that.
1: No, it, it, it felt, it felt like I was being warned at that moment. Mm. So it did. The spirit was talking to me, even though I hadn't invited the spirit into that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't ask the spirit to guide me through the day Mm -hmm. when I woke up in the morning, but, but the Lord was still trying to help me. And there were some alarms that went off that said, you know, just get out of here. But I got this curiosity thing that I think a lot of us face. And, and he offered me a couple of pills and said, "Do do you want to, do you want some of these for your pain? And I was like, yeah, I mean, why not? I had a little run with pain pills after I blew out my knee in soccer in high school. So I I knew that there I I have this kind of a, an allergic reaction in the positive sense when I ingest a mood or mind altering substance where my whole body and mental s- state changes and I feel invincible. Mm. And so I had I had a relationship with Percocet when I was in high school, but it wasn't anything on the addictive level nor nor did I have any inklings that I had a problem. I just thought everybody must feel this way. These are awesome. That's why they give it to you, right? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And so at that moment, he uh, began to crush up one of the pills in a dollar bill with two nickels, and he poured it on a a CD case. And for those of you that don't know what a CD is, that's (laughs) what we used to listen to music (laughs) on, and they came in these plastic cases. and, And he used his credit card to draw up to lines of powder, and he snorted the first one and he offered me the second and as I kind of looked at him with a blank stare he uh he said, "Oh, it's fine. this way actually protects your stomach lining, and it'll hit you faster it'll take away your pain faster, which I thought were two great medical reasons to <laughs> go ahead and snort a line of pain pills <laughs> and i yeah uh, so i I did I ignored the warnings in my Head and was disobedient to that prompting. And I went forward, and that was the moment that changed my life because right after I snorted that pill, on top of the little alcohol I had in my system, it took me to a place that I never wanted to leave. Mm. I felt a euphoria that, you know, it's pharmaceutical grade heroin, is what it is. Mm. And it does hit you faster when you chop it up like that. And, and uh, When in that euphoria, he looked at me and offered me an opportunity to go see his doctor.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like this doctor was not uh, upstanding with his uh, medical license. Is that what it turned out to be here?
1: (laughs) Oh, man. I I walk in. So I I set the appointment and I go, and he gives me a couple of pills to tie me over until that that appointment. And when I walked in, I looked around and it just felt gross in there. Mm. I go, go up to the desk and I give the receptionist, my insurance card, and I go through the whole process you would normally go through. And I come from a background of physicians. My father was was a pediatrician and both of my brothers are physicians and my brother-in-law is my sister married one. So I come, I know what's above board and what's not. And when yeah. they handed me the paperwork to fill out, they also gave me some instructions of what to say in the paperwork. And all of those instructions were to write out answers of symptoms that I didn't have, and what it was was fabricating a, a herniated disc on paper, which I didn't have. Right, I just had a a whiplash, and once again, I was getting warnings in my my mind: "Get out of here, yeah. and leave. This is not Lots a of stop possible.
0: signs on this path in the beginning, right?
1: Yep, yeah, it, absolutely. And and so I got a another voice going on in my head at the same time, which is that that voice. I think a lot of us can relate to. Of um, justifying and minimizing, Jason, you, you have a real injury. You were just in a car accident. You're fine. Yeah. You know these. Pa- this paper is just going to sit and collect dust anyway in a filing cabinet. So, and then I made a concession that I would go see the doctor, and if I felt like it was shady when I was in his office, then I would leave. And so I took the next step. I went back to his office. He did a perfunctory medical exam sat down at his desk and he slid over a piece of paper that had my name on it. And it was for 120 pills of oxycotton. And then he slid over some instructions and the instructions were to the pharmacy to pick it up, which pharmacist to talk to and what to say, mm. you know, and at that moment I was powerless. I, I had ignored those warnings in my mind so many times leading up to this, that the voice of, and the craving of go get your own bottle, this is justified because you have a legitimate injury and you can prove it to anyone because you were just in a car accident caused me to move forward. Yeah. And so I went and got that bottle. And for five months, I went back to that doctor every single month. And not only that, but as I was leaving his office, the doctor said, Jason, when you're ready for a refill, connect with your coworker and he'll set up the appointment.
0: Wow. So this wasn't just some thug in a dark alley. I mean, this is, I mean, this is some, an example of how, you know, up and up it can appear that these, these processes of, of addiction are happening, right?
1: Oh, my gosh. It, wow. it was, you know, in 2001, we saw a, since 2001, we've seen a massive epidemic with opioid overdoses yeah. and deaths in this country. What happened was that the insurance fraud division caught wind that there was one doctor in Midvale, Utah that was prescribing four times the amount of any other physician in the area of this particular drug. And so they investigated him for many months and they raided his office. They indicted him on 83 felony counts. Then they went after all the patients and the very TV station I was working for aired the story and I'm watching it and I see this doctor on the news busted and they say more arrests are going to be made. And now I'm in panic mode because number one, my source just dried up.
0: Uh-huh. So because this was your doctor. Yeah. yeah I'm hooked.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been going for five months now. Oh yeah. I'm hooked. I lost probably 40 pounds and it was just it, it was it was really bad. So, you know, what what does a hundred and thirty-nine patients who are being prescribed that quantity of that high uh, quality of a drug do when their supplier runs out. Yeah. They're going to go to the black market. Yeah. And so that's what we did. And I was buying up pills. I was paying uh, sometimes a couple hundred dollars a pill. I mean, I drained my 401k. I started pawning things of my wife's like wedding rings and heirlooms and guitars and everything. Just to feed my addiction. Yeah. And it just didn't make any sense. And and the cartels heard about all these rings. It was this one was the, the largest oxycontin drug ring in history in the state of Utah. Wow. And more were dismantled afterwards that were even bigger. But now you have all of these patients that are addicted and their supplier dries up. The cartels start pumping black tar heroin into the marketplace. You got Interstate 80, interstate I-15 as a crossroads of the West for traffickers. Uh And so now the Salt Lake Valley is the hub of heroin and, and opiates. And that's why you see this epidemic that spiked. It's not like one year. Everybody's like, you know, I think I'm going to go get on pain pills this year. Yeah. yeah. They, They were on pain pills and then a lot of them flipped to heroin because they couldn't, they couldn't access it. Yeah. But, uh,
0: so at this point, I mean, your addiction is completely out of control. Your, your source dries up. Uh, I imagine your, your married life is completely coming apart, right? Your family life, your
1: social life. I mean, is that how you describe it? Well, you can only live a lie for so long. Yeah. Right. And I, I was living a lie for a long time because it didn't just catch up to me right after that. One day I was out mowing my lawn. By the way, I did end up going to the streets and I turned to heroin and crack cocaine. So now my addiction had progressed, even though my supplier right now. Yeah, cause,
0: and on the surface, you're, uh, go to church every Sunday, Peter priesthood. I mean, is that how you describe it? I, I mean, would say so. Yeah.
1: I would say so. There were times that I was skipping out, but for the most part, I was still. You're holding up that life.
0: facade to correct to your neighbors and everything. Yeah, yep.
1: Calling in sick at work when I didn't feel like going, you know, just stuff like that. Just all the symptoms that you see. Uh huh. And one, one summer day, now it was, now it was summer, I was out mowing my lawn and I was really loaded and an unmarked vehicle pulled up to my curbside and an officer gets out and walks up to me with a manila envelope. And you can, you can remember where I lived in that cul-de-sac and he uh, walks up to me and hands me a manila envelope and said, I recommend you get an attorney, have a nice day. Hmm. And he drives off. And I open up that envelope and I start to read and I'm being charged with insurance fraud, felonies, distribution, obtaining false prescriptions, doctor shopping. I mean, the list just kept going on and on with the number of years that I was going to be sentenced to the Utah State Penitentiary if I'm convicted. And I was guilty of all of it. Mm -hmm. So that's
0: that's scary. I mean, yeah. You're yeah. guilty and you're probably scared.
1: Yeah. Right. This little LDS kid that grew up in the suburbs of <laughs> president Faust's grandson, president <laughs> Faust's grandson. I mean, what if this hits the news? I'm just totally beside myself. And at that point I had to share with my family cause you can only live a life for so long. Uh-huh. And I needed, I needed an attorney. I needed. And so that's when my wife, um, we learned about it. My parents learned about it. And they, and they had
0: no clue at this point. No clue. Even your wife, I mean, living no with clue. you day to day. Wow. No wow. clue. And you're living in Bishop Dane's ward at this point, right?
1: Yes, but he wasn't the bishop. Oh, okay. He wasn't the bishop. I didn't know him at all.
0: My first um,
2: introduction to Jason was he was teaching my daughter's Sunday school class. My daughter, Emma, and he, he and his wife had asked me and my wife to sub for him. I don't, know, I don't know if you recall that, but mm. it was the first time I met Jason.
0: Nice. And little did you know the the relationship with it would come through some hard times. Right.
1: Yeah. So, I probably had an appointment with my dealer and I needed you to cover <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, if, you, if right. you can't laugh
0: about it, you, right. you know, right. will cry. <laughs> yeah. So th- there you are. And, um, and then wh- where does it go from there? I mean, I know, uh, jail time is, is in your future here, right?
1: Jail I mean, time was, was right around the corner, but before the jail time, uh-huh. um, it was, the streets and it was rehab, um, multiple rounds of rehab.
0: And, and you mentioned you, this is the time you kind of open this all up to your family. I mean, did, did, did you also go to your, the Bishop at that time and, and try that process? I mean, did you come to them? Like, I, this is crazy. I'm fully repentant. Or were you still trying to cover up some, yep. some of the lies?
1: Yeah. Bishop Dane's predecessor, uh, really did help me c- connected me to some of my first addiction recovery program meetings. Okay. Um, what's interesting about someone in pre-contemplation though, like I was, I didn't think I had a problem. Yeah. I kind of got found out. Um, and
0: I think that's such like an important thing to emphasize is that, I mean, you literally have this, I mean, is that a Hollywood, this guy drives up, hand you a manila folder. I mean, you're, you're looking at a, a, an awful future here with these, with these indictments, and you still didn't think you had a problem. Right. right? And, and that's important for a leader to understand that, just because they're going through these motions does not mean they are admitting to really having a problem.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. We, we go through that in any behavior change. Yeah. You know, it's like uh sugar. Can we all agree that sugar isn't, there's no nutritional value of sugar, but right. if I were to say, Hey, you need to stop eating sugar, Not going to happen. I don't chasing. have a problem, man. Get off my back. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of the yeah. same thing. It's yeah. like, yeah, I, like I, I agree that sugar is not good for me, but, it's given me a lot more benefits than it is consequences yeah. right now, and right. and that's how it was for me. But now the consequences were mounting, and mm-hmm. and you mentioned jail. Like I, I, lived on the streets for the whole winter. Um, so
0: you went from mowing your lawn
1: to living on the streets. Like yeah.
0: In in a few minutes, fast you, forwarding <laughs> through, right, right. through a lot. But <laughs> so your marriage falls apart. Marriage kicks falls you out.
1: Marriage falls apart. apart. The, the the dishonesty, the lying, the stealing, because I was stealing uh-huh. from her and my uh-huh. house and everything that I could get, I would go and pawn just to keep my addiction up. Cause when you're at that level, you wake up and the moment you wake up to the moment you pass out, which might be days later, Mm -hmm. you're on the either on the hunt for means to get dope or you're using dope and you're experiencing it. It's just an all encompassing insane space to be mentally and living on the streets, homeless, was its own story in and of itself. Just what I experienced, the cold, the dark, the being robbed at screwdriver point, attempting to rob others. I mean, I was in a very dark place in my life where God wasn't a part of my thoughts. It was complete animal survival on the streets. And that's what it was. And uh, luckily There was an intervention and the law caught up with me and I ended up getting incarcerated and I was entered into a drug court program. And while I was incarcerated, I just could not stay sober to save my life. So they would put me in for a couple of months. I would get out and I would go use within hours. Hmm. Even though I promised the judge and my family I wouldn't, the craving kicks in and I was powerless over that craving. So I just talked myself into just one more time, just one more time. Nobody will know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's how it went. And, and while I was in that year of incarceration, that is where I met you.
0: Bishop Danes. <laughs> so what do you remember? Uh, Brenton's, I did, did it come as a phone call and did the, the other Bishop sort of bring up to speed with this mysterious uh, Jason fellow or no, unfortunately I had no
2: warnings. <laughs> uh, it was, it was nothing from the prior Bishop, but I had been serving for about a month. And received a phone call from his ex-wife saying, someone needs to go visit Jason, and I just, you need to know he's in the Davis County Jail. And so I was pretty green and pretty raw, and I put my suit and tie on and went into the Davis County Jail and asked to see Jason Coombs, and here came Jason through the glass, and he was pretty rough, Yeah, not (laughs) looking too happy about seeing me, but... Yeah. Um,
0: so, and, and were you, were you happy to see him? I mean, or what did you think? Oh, here's some guy to just shame me to death. I mean, what did you, what were you thinking that moment when you walked up to that glass?
1: I remember I was reading a book, a John Grisham book on my bunk and over the loudspeaker in my cell, uh, the officer said, Coombs get dressed. You, you have a clergy visit. And I had never had a clergy visit and I had never heard a bishop be called clergy before. And so I was wondering if it was another religion that was Mm.
0: just like doing the rounds or something. Yeah. yeah,
1: Missionary work or something. And so I put on my finest stripes and, (laughs) and I went down there in shackles. And when I came around the corner, I saw you and you were sitting down, but you stood up and I was trying to place you because you looked familiar. And it was from that time Uh that I, I met you passing or whenever we asked you to cover for us the Sunday school class of your daughters. And, and, um, I just, uh, what I remember is I sat sat down and I was wrestling with who is this? Why is he here? And is he trying to preach at me? Is he, you know, I, I just don't want that right now. I don't need that right now. But I also had this other side of me that was just so grateful that someone came. I mean, I was so completely desolate inside. Nobody wanted to visit me. I had burned all my bridges. And here was a stranger that didn't know who I was and said he was my new bishop. Hmm.
0: That's powerful. Brent, I mean, and I know the feeling, I mean, you're just a few weeks into this and and you kind of, I remember these moments you sit down, and you sort of feel like, I think this is the part where I say something really miraculous and yeah. the spirit floods in and, you know, but sometimes that doesn't come. I mean, what, how did you approach that? I mean, there maybe it wasn't some masterful plan that you had, but you were there. So where do you go from no, there? No, I,
2: um, I had no training. I had, I had no idea what was going to happen. I was scared to be in the jail. It was my first experience got heckled as I went in because there'd just been a shutdown of the jails and they just opened it back up and to visitors. And and I was, I was really nervous. And, but I, you know, just to, just to rewind a little bit, I had had an experience in my family where about six years older earlier, my brother had passed away from an alcohol addiction Hmm. and he had battled addiction his entire life. And so I had had an inside view to what addiction was. And I can't say that, that I physically saw Jason as my brother, but when Jason sat down, I knew who Jason was because I knew how incredible my brother was, even though he was ravaged with addiction. Yeah. I remember thinking when we when we had his, my brother's funeral that these guys are kind of talking about my brother like he's a bum because he had this alcohol problem. And, and I said, he's not a bum. So I had I'd been prepared with that experience clearly by Heavenly Father to to be able to, to minister to Jason and I can't remember if I had the impression in the car or when I was sitting there, but I had my scriptures with me. But I had the distinct impression, two impressions. One was I could I saw my brother in Jason, mm-hmm. right? He was God's child. He's a great guy. He comes with an addiction, and I just saw him differently. Then the second was is don't read any scriptures was the distinct impression, and I don't recall Jason if I had the scriptures in there. But, yes. I kind of pushed him off to the side, and we didn't we just talked and I think I shared with you my story of my brother and i I maybe that broke down a barrier, but I really saw Jason through God's eyes in that moment, and I think that's such a powerful lesson that I learned is from your life's experiences you create weaknesses and you're you're, you're at God's mercy, and I was at his mercy. this was my brother who passed away, and it just crushed me it was my mentor, my hero. And, and in that weakness, I was ministered to by Heavenly Father. And then I was able to to turn around and see Jason completely different than maybe other people had. So,
0: yeah. And that I think describes a lot of that experience, especially, you know, as a bishop or a Relief site president, where you, like the, the gift that comes to these individuals, you just begin to see people as Christ sees them. Like it, mentally you're thinking, what is wrong with this person, but you can't help but just love them. No.
2: And I I believe in large measure, that's a combination of two things. One is the mantle and the keys you're given without doubt. And then second is that the Heavenly Father, I truly believe that the church runs extremely smooth, but there's four or five people in your ministry or in your time as a bishop that that you're called to serve them. And in fact, I was not, I was an elder at the time. I was early forties. I wasn't one that had been groomed on the high council. I wasn't on the top five list to replace <laughs> Bishop McKay. I was a dark horse. And, and I, it came as a complete shock to me when I was called as bishop, but it was clear within a month or two what my you know responsibility was and how I could help certain individuals. And so the mantle is real, the keys are real, and then just the life's experiences, that's why, that's why I was called. Yeah.
0: You know, I want to underscore sort of a principle you mentioned there is, it's so easy when you are bishop or now you're serving the state president. I mean, there's just so many people, right? And you sort of feel like, I have got to be a leader to all these people. But it's so helpful to go through this process and say, actually, through over my time, these five years or nine years or whatever it is, there's probably going to be five to 10 people where there's going to be a strong bond, and I'm just going to nurture that. And that like totally takes that weight off yeah. someone's shoulders saying, and, yeah. you know what, okay, I'm going to look for those five people. Exactly. And just nurture that relationship. Yeah. And, and passing with
2: bishops and now currently my call, we talk about that a lot. It's find those three or four people that you can really connect with and that who you've been called. The other 80, 90%, it's the 80, 20 rule. They're going to, they're going to do their thing. Yeah. And God's mercy and God's love will work on them and they'll be okay. But there's that, there's that. three or or four in that five or six year calling that will be affected by you greatly. And it's to find them and to nurture them and to love them and pray for the others. You fast for them, you put their name in the temple, but there's not a whole lot you can do for the other 80%. Yeah.
0: And and even now I kind of go through this process of thinking, you know, I'm not a bishop anymore. In fact, I'm outside of that stake, but there, there are still those five or six people that I need to connect with. I need to reach out to send a text every once in a while, because they see me still as a leader. They still see me as Bishop Frankum, and and that can be powerful. Yeah,
1: it can be powerful. Yeah.
0: So, do do either of you even even remember what was talked about in this first interaction? I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know.
1: I do, and and uh, you alluded to it, which was I think you could you could see on my face just the inner wrestle and the, and the spirit communicating those promptings to you was was exactly what I needed. It was exactly because had you let out by being insincere and if I felt like you were just there to check a box or that you were there to preach at me, I just know myself well enough, especially in that space, I would have dismissed, discounted and disregarded and discredited everything that you had to say. And no rapport would have been built that day. But when you were obedient to those promptings and you let out, I remember you leading out saying, Jason, I'm here cause I want to help. And you shared with me about your brother and you shared that uh, he wasn't a bum. I remember using that exact term. He wasn't a bum. He was a beautiful man, but he had alcoholism and I want to help you. And it, the way you talked to me was, was free of any judgment and that was the first time anyone anyone had talked to me that way in a very long time, it felt like. And it shined into my soul where I built a rapport and a trust so fast with you because of the approach that you took. And you took the approach that the Spirit led you to take. You You put away the canned approach or the the awkwardness of meeting a stranger in jail behind bars. I mean, there was nothing smooth about this first meeting on the external, but just, just the spiritual connection through that glass was, uh, everything because upon that foundation, there was repeat visits. Uh, I believe on my second or third visit with you, I shared some things I hadn't told a soul Mm. that were killing my spirit. And I was using drugs and alcohol to numb those, that shame. There were other things going on inside me that I was so guilty and shame, shameful about. Drugs and alcohol just helped me avoid feeling those and facing those. But to share those with you across that glass over the course of the time that I was locked up was uh, a huge step, step forward in my own spiritual progress. And you showed up every time genuinely tried and cared and listened and and then you eventually started to share some scriptures with me yeah. which i was finally open to one thing to point out was kurt was i he think it was the third
2: visit second or third visit he says do you have a piece of paper and i said sure and he said write this number down so i wrote the number down and he said i need you to make a phone call for me because i can't call out of here and it was to president faust <laughs> So did,
0: did he tell you that, or
2: he told me who it was? Oh, okay. I didn't know. I didn't know Jason the first time I visited. Though that, that, that connection, but he, uh-huh. I learned that. I learned that quickly thereafter. But so he said, "I want you to call President Mike Grandpa and tell him I love him." And so that was one of the most as difficult as was to visit. Jason the first time in the jail. As nervous I was, I was as nervous calling us. <laughs> It was his home, it was his cell phone. Yeah, it wasn't his office. It was his grandpa I'm calling. And so I called him and he was so kind and said thank you and just said we love Jason and and there was just so much kindness in his heart. And that helped that was an inspiration to me too, to see that a grandparent wasn't out to get Jason, give him the full extent of law. We're tired of what he's done to the family. It was it was just completely from a position of love Mm -hmm. that he how kind he was to me. And say, and he said, Bishop, good luck. We'll be praying for you. And so it was. It was a. That was an, an interesting. I, I learned a lot there about sometimes families that deal with uh, addicts. It's not a lot of fun. They yeah. deal with the. They deal with the minutia, and there's, you know, they're, they're upset. Yeah, they're angry. But he came from a place of love. So
0: yeah. So Jason, with this, uh, I'm just thinking about the din- dynamic of this. You know, clergy visit of a of a. Bishop coming in and speaking to you rather than, because I'm sure you had, you know, family and friends and individuals coming and wanting to, you know, encourage you and express their love and, and so forth. What, how, how was that clergy visit dynamic different than just any other visit?
1: I wasn't getting any visits. Okay. um, (laughs) So that was a huge difference. It was so that there's the first one. (laughs) So I looked like a rock star when I showed up. (laughs) Yeah. You were the only one who showed up. Uh, My ex-wife showed up one time and then a childhood friend showed up one time. But other than that,
0: and and the other thing is like uh, other than clergy, they can visit at any time, right? there's not a a restriction, right? So that, that helps. And really, I, I always try and remember that, that Listen, I can visit them at any time. Like, let's let's uh, exploit this this opportunity to to visit because that you're clergy, you can go at any time.
1: So, yeah, I I uh, I had a spiritual experience. I wasn't thinking. I, I I actually am just reminded of a spiritual experience I had in my cell during that window of time, and uh, you you're ministering to me in there and those weekly visits began to open me up in ways that you'll never or I will never be able to measure, which I I was able to experience. The veil become very thin and and receive some messages from my grandfather Coombs, who was who had passed away before I was born, and had an incredible spiritual experience. And so I began believing that although I had done so many Grotesque, monstrous things in my mind that I wasn't outside of the bounds of the Savior's love. Mm. That He was still sending angels like Bishop Danes. Um, but I think what's really cool about this story isn't just this jail experience. It was the commitment beyond jail, because there was a day I got released, and there was a commitment to circle up and let's continue this momentum and. I said, absolutely, let's do this. And I was excited about it. And I get released. Disappear. Mm. Disappear. I don't the priority in jail became the last thing on my mind again because I hadn't fed the soul to the point where I was ready to make a change. I was more in a contemplation stage of change and and that is the waffling back and forth, not a real commitment. Mm-hmm. And Bishop Danes, year after year, kept tabs on me. And I'm not sure how, if it was because I had the same number or if you would find out where I worked, but at critical moments in my life, you would show up. I remember one time you showed up when I was out selling some cell phones at a little store in Sugar House, trying to make it. And I was on, I think I was on work release at this point because I had gone back to jail and then they gave me some time to do work release. And it was hard to kind of keep tabs on where I was because my number kept changing. I didn't have cell phone. Mm -hmm. My parents didn't know where I was. So it's not like you could really know where I was at. And you reached out and you showed up and you drove across town to come upgrade all your family's phones from me so that I could make a commission. And then you invited me to go to lunch. And how could I say no? I mean, it was just a big sale. And so (laughs) I I agreed to go to lunch (laughs) and at lunch we reconnected and he picked up the ball again and just continued it to carry it towards the line. And even if it was inch by inch, uh, I, I remember another time when you showed up at a, At a hot dog stand I was working at and ministered to me then. I mean, and your constant texts that you would send just kept breathing life into me. And this was over the course of four years Wow, since that initial jail visit, right? Yeah. Yeah. And
0: I think that's important. it wasn't that, you know, Bishop Dane started visiting you, you got out of jail, you were Elderscorn president in six months and everybody lived happily ever after. Right. Like this is a process where it wasn't that, that you know, Jason's good now because he has someone, you know, his Bishop reach out to him. It's this, it's this constant, like ebb and flow and, and push and pull relationship that you just had to stay engaged. Right. And you didn't know that it was working or wasn't working, but you stayed engaged. Felt like a number of times it wasn't working
2: but i just continued to feel my father's love for jason and um i would be prompted and then i would reach out and connect with him and then eventually he was open to meeting even though he was living elsewhere he would come to the office in my bishop's office at night i remember in the wintertime several times and and so yeah it was it was a, a long process there were times when I don't know that he was trying to, Jason was trying to tell me everything was okay, but I knew with the gift of the sermon, it wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, you know, I knew it was a long process. And, and again, I, I deferred back to my experience with, we had dealt with, with addiction in our family that over 20 years, I watched my brother go, you know, through it. So,
0: yeah. And so at this point, I mean, when he got out of, when Jason's out of jail that first time, he didn't go back to your ward, right? No. And so it wasn't that his record was. We kept was, his record in our ward. Oh, okay.
2: And my wife jokingly said that I'm the bishop to the rest of the world, not my own ward, because <laughs> Jason was out of the ward. You know. Oh, yeah. And we had another situation like that, but and you know she obviously was very supportive of that. But his records were in. We kept the records in
0: the yeah. ward. and I think that's an important principle to, to dwell on. Is that um, it's so easy in those situations, you know, you got so much on your plate. You know, let's let's pass the football over to somebody else and let them run for a while. Like I've got my own stuff here, but, but when you have that connection, like just see the value in it. And that may, you know, and maybe what, maybe Jason just didn't have a, I mean, I guess he was hard to find. It sounded like, so you didn't really, you wouldn't know where to send the records if you did, but, but just staying engaged and not using like, Oh, well he's out of the ward technically. And I need to focus here. Like don't use that in a, as and, an excuse. And I
2: certainly could have punted very easily with yeah. that, but felt
1: impressed not to. Yeah. 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 Sure. I, uh, if if i may there there was a the story eventually changed when an event happened in my life outside of this relationship with with bishop danes and i uh i found out that i was gonna be a dad and this was after my divorce and it was with uh my this anyway we uh when- when my son was born i was still in a bad place i was in and out of jail and homeless and living in little apartments. When he was born, I was invited up to the hospital by by his mom. And when I went in and I held him, it was a surreal experience. But quickly after that, he was rushed into the ICU. Mm. And for one week, he was in the ICU with tubes down his nose and down his throat because he had real trouble breathing. And so for that week I stared at him through the glass and just watched him fight for his life. And, you know, here's my, my firstborn son fighting to stay alive and I'm squandering my life. Mm. I don't care about my life. I'm ready to end it. And to see him fight for his life, it inspired me to fight for mine and, uh, After, so I went down uh, and I wrote him a letter and I expressed to him and promised him that I'd change my life for him, that someday he would be proud of his, of his dad. And someday I would explain to him why he and his mom or why I and, and his mom made the decision to place him up for adoption. And a week after he got out of the hospital, we handed our newborn son over to the care of another family to raise Mm. and if you haven't gone through that experience the grief is so hard especially when you have so much shame already and that promise that i made to him to change my life and to stay sober in that letter only lasted a couple of days because i was in so much pain and i I went back to numbing and using because i didn't have any other coping skills and I went through five rehabs, and in my fifth rehab, this was a uh, 12-step-based program in Salt Lake City, and it was faith-based. And when I got to step four and five, which is the inventory of your past and the confession, I had the option of inviting someone from the local ward or from the recovery community or a sponsor, if I knew one or an alumni to come in and do this fifth step with me where I would confess everything so that I could move on to step six. The only person that made any sense to me was reaching back out to Bishop who had been with me all those years, helping me and who already knew a lot of what I've been through and, uh There was one or two things on this list when you came out and listened to my confession that I was going to take to my grave. And your trust and your belief in me and your prayers and the spirit all combined in that moment, I made the decision to share those things with you, which you probably have forgotten since then because, but to me, they were, they were the biggest things on that were blocking me off from ever coming back. I was so afraid of excommunication and I was so afraid of the punishment and getting kicked out of the church. And what, what, how would that look on my family? How would it, how would it all play out? And you gave me what it took to be honest for the first time, completely honest and wipe the slate clean. And when I wiped the slate clean, I, I was free. And from that day I have been free. And, uh, I am so grateful that you were there and I'm so grateful that I had a relationship with someone to, to share those things with. Cause I genuinely don't think I would be sober had I not gone through that ex- experience with you.
0: Yeah. My wife's throwing some tissues, by the way. So <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm in my sister-in-law's place. I don't know where it's at. She's coming. So I want to emphasize that, that, you know, that was probably several years from that initial jail visit. Right. And so where it's, we can get so caught up in that confession process. Like we sometimes think, well, we need to begin there. Let's get everything out on the table so that we can work through this. But paramount to that is that connection, right? That building that relationship. And then at some point it just comes and it cracks open and you don't even have to egg it on, right? As the, as the priesthood leader, it just comes and then it can be such this healing redemptive process. Right. And, uh, and you just have to be patient for that. Yeah. And I, I had had um, some
2: experiences previously, well where I was really impressed by a scripture in first John or it basically it says I'm paraphrasing that when we confess our sins, it purges us of all unrighteousness and un- ungodliness and And so I knew the power and the minute that Jason had his clipboard with I don't know it was 15, 20, 30 pages of very specific. I think we took about two hours, maybe three hours roughly to go through that. Line by line, hmm. I could see the healing taking place and the weight lifting hmm. from him, and it was a different. It was a different day from that day forward, Jason. It was no longer fear. It was no longer shame based. It was the love had filled his heart and took over, and he was a different person yeah. because of that. That's process. powerful.
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm. How would you? you know, where does your recovery go from, from that point? It sounds like you were sort of getting some routine and getting back on, on the, on the ball of, with, with life, right? Yeah.
1: I, uh, I immersed myself into a fellowship that was doing recovery. And I believe that we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with. And I started hanging out with five winners that were, that really wanted to change. And, and I became the sixth. I started to think like them. I started to act like them. I did I did the things they did. I'd go to the meetings where they would go and I'd get honest and make amends like they were doing and and so I, I continued through the twelve steps in recovery. I think the, the biggest hang up that I had was self-forgiveness. And when it came time to face my situation with the church and my church discipline, I was really struggling with that word excommunication and I remember my therapist asking me about it and he said Jason is it true that you have been out of communication with God while you were in your addiction and I said well yeah I, I was out of communication with God and he said this is just a formal process where you can identify where you've been and begin your process back into communication and into light and love of the gospel. And that changed my entire Hmm. perspective of the church discipline process. What I looked at it as, Oh, I'm just going to identify where I've been. Like, they're not going to shame me and beat me down. I mean, I'm already down. There's nothing you can really do to me. And, uh, I went, I went through, uh, that disciplinary council with the stake and, um, Bishop Danes was by my side as my advocate. He was the only one that came and you advocated for me. You shared with them what we had been through from the beginning, all the way through the confession. I've never felt God's love stronger in my life than in my excommunication. And that was the ultimate result. But what was beautiful about that was that I still was hanging on to things like smoking and coffee and I wasn't living the way I should to, to, uh, come back into the church. And I asked president Danes or Bishop Danes, what do you do when you don't want to give up something that, that you like? And I'll never forget when you sat back in your chair and you looked at me and you said, you begin by praying for the willingness and the desire to stop. And so I started praying for the desire to stop smoking because I didn't want to stop. I prayed for the desire to give up coffee and to start going to church. And over the course, I think it, it wasn't many years after that, maybe under two years, you were the one that conducted my baptism. You were the one a year after that, that restored my blessings. Not too long after that, you married my wife and I. And you did the actual wedding ceremony. I mean, th- this beautiful story of his thread through every major, significant role in my life. Yeah, you know, being reinstated into the into the church with you by my side, like I faced what was what was seemingly the most intense, scary thing. But having a Christ-like man by my side um, help me get to know my Savior, help me to feel that my Savior was on my other side, and and the, to let the atonement come in and change me from the inside out to where I don't I don't have those same desires. Like He literally has changed all my desires. I don't want. I don't want to, to be disobedient. I don't want to dabble in the dark. I want to be all in to the gospel all the time. And that's a cool thing to, because that's a gift. I, I couldn't just like decide that and get that. That's just been gifted to me.
0: Yeah. That's powerful. You know, and I appreciate some of these things that you mentioned, um, that really become difficult for leaders, um, to understand, you know, how do I help them help them out of this state of mind because, um, you know, you mentioned this, this concept of self-forgiveness. I mean, I remember so many times as a leader that, you know, having individuals in my office that just, they could, they could see how the atonement works for other people, but for them, like, no, they, they've broken so many rules. It's they're, they're out of balance. Right. And, um, and I just love this, this process of how the leader walked you through that, you know, this is, we're just going to recognize where you've been. This isn't a punishment, you know, we're not trying to come down on you and, and really make you understand what you've done, but just let's recognize where you've been and, and begin that process of coming back. Right. And and that changes it because those disciplinary councils, are are some of the most spiritual meetings I've ever been in. Right. And, uh, there's no feeling of punishment or it's all feelings of, of beginning. So any other thoughts from either of you as far as this process of helping an individual understand that uh, as far as getting over like self-forgiveness?
1: For me, I remember in that disciplinary council, the state president, President Felt, asked me what I thought should be the outcome. Should it be probation? Should it be excommunication? And I felt so strongly in that moment that excommunication was going to allow me the gift of being rebaptized to go through the symbolism again of burying the old guy and coming up a new man Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and leaving that in the water, leaving that behind. And so when it came to self-forgiveness, just the, the symbolism of baptism was the most important for me to finally get over so many things that I had been carrying for so long and the people that I had hurt. And I still have some guilt and shame around the things that I'd done, but it's beautiful to know that I'm still healing. And a big chunk of that was through baptism and the day or the weekly sacrament. I remember leaving my baptism and I heard someone say, man, I wish I could get baptized as an adult because I didn't really know what I was doing at uh, eight. And I'd love to be clean again. And I just thought to myself, like, man, he's missing it. He's missing the sacrament. He's missing that every single week we get this.
0: Yeah. That's powerful. Any thoughts, Brent, as far as uh, getting over self-forgiveness?
2: I think it becomes the challenge for all of us, no matter where we are in leadership positions, everyday members of the church and, and every people of every faith in general. And that is, is your personal relationship with our heavenly father and realizing that he will always come to you where you are and that shame doesn't, is not part of his vocabulary. And, and it's realizing that, that Jesus Christ is your personal savior and redeemer. And that's something very hard for all of us to understand. Recall a personal experience I had as a missionary in Stillwater, Oklahoma, I had an interview with president Tom Byrd and he'd asked me he didn't go through any of the rules. I was a zone leader at the time and had a previous mission president that was, it was pretty mechanical and, mm-hmm. you know, it was all about rules and numbers and tracking. And this very humble man said to me, tell me how you feel about Jesus Christ as your personal savior and redeemer. And I remember teaching and baptizing people and wanting the atonement to work in everyone's life, but I never saw the atonement apply to me. Why would why would Heavenly Father create this plan for me that I could return with Him, and why would He, why would this work for me? And then so, so I, I, think it's important that each of us see our connection to God, and that shame is not part of God's plan. And that works both ways, as a leader and as a member, you know, covenant, a covenant member of the Church, is that we are God's children. He sees us where we are. He loves us for who we are. Wants us to improve, obviously. And, but he's always there. I find it in my own life how he's he's constantly there when sometimes I don't think he's there. And so, again, shame is just not part of his of God's vocabulary.
3: Yeah. And,
0: yeah. Anything else we're missing in your story? I mean, I'm sure the story's still going, right? And uh, and you're finding success in various ways. But any anything we haven't touched on that would be important to include.
1: I feel wide open and and raw. It it has been a long time that I've been able to share and to re-experience the impact of a ministering key holder, the key holder's life on, or a role in my life and influence in my life. I share my story a lot, but it's not this side of it. It's not the most important side of it, which Mm -hmm. is my testimony side of it, which is the Lesson that I learned through those small little decisions of drinking coffee at work and going skiing on Sundays and how the desensitization began there, where I began to have blindness of the mind and then hardness of the heart. And then the deception and the deceit just began to distance myself even further from spiritual sensitivity and disobedience to those promptings and not heeding to those warnings and to see how those little decisions led me down a a path that when I tell my story, it's almost like I'm watching some crazy dateline story. Like how do, (laughs) how do those things happen to one individual all in a short period of time? I mean, it was so wild for so long. And I think back now being where I'm at 10 years in recovery and you know, fully engaged in the gospel and with a stake calling and, you know, consulting other church leaders. It's so amazing to be here to look look back at that one principle of how important it is just to be obedient. Just just that. Like at the core of it. Had I been obedient, I would have saved myself and others years and years and years of pain. And there's still wreckage that I don't know will ever be cleaned up or fixed, but I know that God makes good on even crazy broken situations. Like the fact that I was able to go and give my birth son, my 10 year sobriety coin in March and to share with him that he was the reason why I changed my life and asked him if I could have his permission to share my story and our story with the world to help people through my book, because the book's dedicated to him Mm -hmm. and for him to say, let's share our story with the world. I mean, These experiences, God has made good on all the wreckage. And that's what is another principle is that no matter how far down we go, it's not about trying to get back what we had that we loved. It's about letting him recreate and reinvent us from the foundation up. And when he does that, we become not just ordinary saints. We become extraordinary saints where now we can reach back into the trench and we can guide and lead others out that are in the pit or help others avoid the pit by being real and honest. And I think that's the direction the leadership is craving and church members are craving is just, just real. Let's be authentic from the pulpit. Let's be genuine in our ministry. Let's follow president Nelson's lead by just being so forthright and and sincere in our words and in our thoughts and president Holland is a great or elder Holland's a great example of just being vulnerable of his own struggle with mental illness Mm -hmm. and depression and how he's worked through that. And like, that's the kind of stuff I think that, uh, my story and other stories do for people is it gives us permission to start sharing our own. Yeah. It's powerful.
0: And really that vulnerability began in that first visit in the jail where, you know, the the Bishop Danes, Got vulnerable about his, uh, his experience with his brother, you know, and, and how that impacted him. So, well, Bishop Danes, I'll let you have the uh, the final word here. I am curious, what would you say to a group of, of leaders out there who maybe have someone like Jason, who was like in Jason's predicament uh, long ago, and they just don't know what to do. What encouragement would you, give, would you give for them?
2: I would say that at the core of what needs to happen in these situations, because they're ugly there's a lot that goes on. And I know at times I was really scared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know sometimes what angle Jason was coming from as an addict, you know, and, and I, I didn't necessarily always see Jason as God sees him because there were times when it was, he would miss an appointment and I'd get frustrated or he would tell me something. And I knew through the gift of the sermon, it was not true. And I know there were casual things, but it's just to see them as God sees them and just remember the second great commandment. And I think that has to be your guide. And, and obviously, it's important that as a leader that we are obedient to our covenants. The final thing that I would say is that, that the covenant of baptism and the covenants that we make in the temple are all for the purpose of drawing us to God and helping us in our ability to care for one another. And if Jason, now that he's obedient, he can care, right? So he's obedient to that covenant that he's made. And so I think it's important that we are obedient to those covenants as leaders. While we're not perfect, I think we need to strive to do that as to the extent possible, but be guided and led by the second great commandment and everything works. Um, Final encouragement is the keys are real. My wife, often we joke that she knows that that the church that they're real and they're they they are god's the ability to lead the church here locally is uh, the keys are real because how could that happen through me mm-hmm. you know i'm just this she knows me very well and has lived with me for 35 years and yet she sees the miracles that take place like jason and and others that we have been called to serve and she's in awe of those of those keys and that's her It's a real testimony builder to her. This is God's work and that he is in charge. But I think at the end of the day, it's being led by that love and being obedient to the second commandment.
0: That concludes my interview with Brent Danes and Jason Coombs. What an inspiring duo they are. I hope they continue to share that story and I'm so glad we could share it with you today. And and, uh, again, my heart goes out to those leaders that are trying so hard to help individuals who seem like they really just don't want the help, even though they really need the help. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart in these individuals. Go after their heart. And you'll find that they have a great companion in the Savior doing the same thing. And you can really be that uh, representative of the Savior by never giving up on them. Don't get frustrated. Don't be disappointed. Just keep going, reaching out to them. If there's anybody else, uh, another story out there between an individual and a leader that needs to be recorded, I'd love to hear about it. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact, and there you can uh, send me a message and let me know who the people are that I should reach out to and, and consider interviewing. It'd be fun to hear from them and hear their stories. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 and join the core leader community today.